The Guardian. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Mr Gregory Campbell. Mr Speaker, number one. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, I'm sure the whole House will want to join me in sending our deepest condolences to all those affected by the appalling terrorist attack in Moscow on Monday. Our thoughts should be with the families of all those who were killed and injured, but especially the family of Gordon Kuzland from the United Kingdom. I spoke to President Medvedev on Monday evening and offered him our complete support that the terrorists should never be allowed to win. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in the House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Mr Gregory Campbell. Thank you, Mr Speaker. On behalf of my colleagues, I would also wish to join in the tribute that the Prime Minister has paid. We would also wish to send our best wishes to an injured soldier in Afghanistan from Northern Ireland who was injured last week. Mr Speaker, every week there is £600 million in fuel duty flowing into the Treasury from hard-pressed motorists right across the United Kingdom. That is £600 million each week since he said a fuel duty stabiliser was a sensible, balanced policy that protects families from big increases in the oil price. He has talked about a fuel duty stabiliser. He's promised it. He's answered questions on it. When is he going to introduce it? Well, I, I don't believe in making tax changes outside a budget. I think that is the proper way we do things in this country. I do think that there is a very strong case for looking at this area because I want to see a situation where, uh, when oil prices rise, we try and help motorists and share the burden with them. The Honourable Gentleman quite rightly reminded me of things that I have said. I perhaps could remind him of something he said when, in his manifesto, he stood on, we must rein back public spending and the key priority of the next government must be reducing debt. I agree with that. Esther McVeigh. I'm delighted that the government's new enterprise allowance will be announced and begin in my home area of Merseyside on Monday. Prime Minister, is it not initiatives like this that will spark enterprise and start businesses in some of the most deprived parts of the country? My my old friend is quite right, and and I hope honourable members opposite will actually encourage people to start up businesses and to get enterprise going, because it's a private sector-led recovery that we need in this country. But we should also give special help to areas like hers, and I visited recently to try and make sure we do everything to help growth in Merseyside and to improve the prospects for the Atlantic Gateway, which I think is a very exciting prospect for her area and for everyone who lives and works on Merseyside. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, can I join the Prime Minister in sending deepest condolences to the families of those killed in the bombing at Moscow Airport? In particular, our thoughts are with the fiancé, family and friends of Gordon Kuzland. Mr Speaker, can the Prime Minister explain to the House what, in his view, is the cause of yesterday's disappointing growth figures? First of all... First of all, they are disappointing growth figures, and they are disappointing even when you've excluded what the Office of National Statistics say about the extreme weather. 
The point I'd make is this. This country does have a very difficult economic situation for two main reasons. First of all, we have the biggest budget deficit in Europe, and we have to get to grips with that, and that is difficult. And second, we had the biggest banking boom and the biggest banking bust anywhere in Europe, and we have to deal with that. And as my right honourable friend, the Chancellor, and the Governor of the Bank of England, and I have all said, inevitably, as you recover from those things, it will be choppy and it will be difficult. But the worst thing to do would be to ditch your plans on the basis of one quarter's figures. Mr Speaker, he has been going round for months saying our economy is out of the danger zone. He, He told this House only a month ago it is because Britain's economy is out of the danger zone and recovering. Now, can I just ask him to confirm, because he said that if you set aside the bad weather, the figures are not good, that setting aside the bad weather, actually growth was completely flat. There was no growth in the, in the last quarter of 2010. No growth at all. That is exactly what the figures show, yes. yes. The, point, the, point I would, the point I would make, he asks about the danger zone, and the point I'd make is this. Britain is no longer linked with countries like Greece and Ireland and Portugal. Yes. If you... If you go back before the last election, everyone was clear. The IOD, the CBI, the Governor of the Bank of England all said there was no credible plan to deal with the deficit. And if you don't deal with your debts, you'll never have growth. That's the truth, and he knows it. If you don't have growth, you'll never cut the deficit. Uh, And that's what we saw in the last quarter of 2010. Now, what what the country want to know what the country want to know from the Prime Minister, as millions of families and businesses are worried about their livelihoods, they see unemployment rising, they see inflation rising, and they see growth stalled. Is he going to change his strategy in any way in order to get the economy moving? What we need to do in our country is get the deficit down and accompany that by doing everything we can to encourage growth. But let me just read him today what the head of the OECD has said about the British economy, because I think this is absolutely vital. He said this, the UK was exceptional in terms of its needs of fiscal consolidation because the deficit had gone completely out of control. He goes on. I think dealing with the deficit is the best way to prepare the ground for growth in the future. In fact, if you don't deal with the deficit, you can be assured that there will be no growth because confidence will not recover. This man, entirely independent, in charge of the OECD, is giving us good advice. And I'd advise the Honourable Gentleman, as he has a new Shadow Chancellor, he can make a new start, he should follow it. The difference is, Mr Speaker, that when we left office, the economy was growing. Now now he's in office and it isn't. Now, now, I have a very specific question. I have a very specific question to ask him. He's already made made clear his decision on VAT, but he's still got a choice to make about whether he goes ahead with a decision to take another £20 billion out of the economy this year when the recovery is is fragile. Is he telling the House and the country that he's determined to go ahead, irrespective of the figures and irrespective of what people up and down the country are feeling? First of all, we have now heard what I think we're going to hear a lot of, which is this theory that there was a golden inheritance from the party (laughs) opposite. 
This is one of the most laughable propositions I've ever heard put in this House of Commons. We won't forget the fact that we had the biggest budget deficit in the whole of Europe. We were spending £120 million every day just on the interest on that deficit. We inherited a situation where, because of the regulation carried out by those two gentlemen when they were in the Treasury, we had the biggest boom and the biggest bust in our banking system. We had a growth model that was based on uncontrollable boom in housing, uncontrollable boom in financial services, uncontrolled public spending and uncontrolled immigration. A completely bust system we inherited from the two people who worked in the Treasury throughout the last Labour government. So I suppose we take from that answer, Mr Speaker, he's not going to change course. He's not going to do anything to get growth, to get growth in the economy. But, but, but this is how out of touch the Prime Minister is. Because what, because what people up and down the country are saying is that he is going too far and too fast with deficit reduction, and that is what is inhibiting growth in this country. Now, the evidence shows, the evidence shows that while, while cuts are being made in the public sector, while jobs are being lost in the public sector, jobs are not being created in the private sector. Why doesn't he just for once put his arrogance aside and, and admit he knows, how to, he knows how to cut jobs, but he has absolutely no idea how he's going to create them? He's got to stop writing his questions before he comes to the chamber and actually listens to the answer. He asks, he asks about... He asks about changing course. I have to say to him, he seems to have replaced a shadow chancellor who didn't understand Labour's programme with one who doesn't agree with it. He asked specifically about cuts next year. Let me just remind him that it is Labour's own plan for significant cuts in spending to start in April of this year. That is the plan. He shakes his head. That is his plan that he's meant to be committed to. If he's now telling us that's all gone and they're just going to spend more and borrow more, then he ought to tell us. Because as far as I can hear, his only plan is to borrow money we haven't got, to spend money on things we, haven't, we, can't, we can't afford, and not to do the work we need to do to sort this economy out. I am surprised, Mr Speaker, that he's raising personnel issues this week of all weeks. Because... Because, because who's made the right judgment? Me that appointed the Shadow Chancellor, or him who clung on to Andy Coulson for months? Now, now, when people listen to the Prime Minister, they'll know what the Right Honourable Member for Holton Price and Howden meant when he said the Prime Minister and Chancellor don't have a sense of what a large part of the country feel. They're out of touch with people's lives. They're taking a reckless gamble. And what these figures show is that for millions of people up and down the country, it's hurting, but it's not working. Uh, if it was such a good decision to have the honourable member as the shadow chancellor, why didn't he appoint him in the first place? Uh, let, me, let me just make this point. I think the absolute key for this country and our economy is two things. We have to deal with our deficit and we have to help deliver growth from our private sector. And I think that he should listen to what the Governor of the Bank of England said last night in his speech. And he said this. The, well, perhaps honourable gentlemen want to listen to the Governor of the Bank of England. 
The UK economy is well placed to return to sustained balanced growth over the next few years, partly as a result of the credible path of fiscal consolidation. He said this, the right course has been set and it's imperative that we maintain it. I prefer the advice of the Governor of the Bank of England than the man sitting opposite. Jacob Rees-Mogg. Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker. Order. Order. I wish to hear Jacob Rees-Mogg. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Isn't the lesson from the noble Baroness Lady Thatcher that when you've set an economic course, you should stick to it? There is no alternative. The point. I think my. My my honourable friend has a a huge following in all parts of the House. Um, (laughs) The point he makes is, is important, which is. Look, whatever you plan to do to encourage growth in the economy, and we have the lowest corporation tax rate in the G7, we have abolished Labour's jobs tax, we are investing in science and skills, all of those things are necessary, but without a plan to deal with the deficit, they are nothing. Ian Mearns. I'm deeply grateful, Mr Speaker. Um, Mr Speaker, I think the Prime Minister would accept that he's had better weeks. He's lost the support of the CBI because he doesn't have a growth strategy. The economy has taken a highly predictable downturn. He's lost his ethics man. And I understand there were forecast snow for the end of the week. Is is there uh, anyone remaining in the government who still understands or is in touch with the concerns of ordinary people whose jobs are under threat because of his policies? The point I would make is the CBI say very clearly it's absolutely essential we get to grips with the deficit. And what they said at the time of Labour's last budget was there was not a credible plan. They believe there now is a credible plan. Now, this is not going to be easy. The, the, The party opposite is committed to cuts from April this year. It won't be easy, but it has to be done. Mr Alok Sharma. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The uh, Conservative Liberal Democrat coalition, which has been running Reading Borough Council since last May, has uncovered the fact that over the past 12 years, the previous Labour administration spent £1.4 million of taxpayers' money funding the salaries of three full-time union officials. Does the Prime Minister, does the Prime Minister agree with me that this is an inappropriate use of taxpayers' money and that full-time union officials should be paid for by union subscriptions. My honourable friend makes a a very good point, and it seems that what happens in local government, it's Labour politicians paying the unions, whereas in national politics, it's the unions paying for the Labour politicians. It's nice work if you can get it. Mr David Crosby. The Government has switched the indexation of benefits and public sector pensions from the retail price index uh, to the lower consumer price index. But when it comes to hiking up petrol, uh, they continue to use the higher retail price index. Now, in the interest of fairness, how can the Prime Minister justify using the higher indexation for petrol? Should they not, at the very least, use one or the other? I could give the Honourable Gentleman one tip, which is before writing the question, always good to work out your own party's policy. The party opposite is now committed to increasing benefits by CPI rather than RPI. So, in fact, he's backing our policy far from opposing it. Elizabeth Truss. Recent 
recent work by the Nuffield Foundation has shown that Britain has the lowest proportion of 16 to 18-year-olds studying mathematics of any of our competitor countries in the OECD. Just as bad, we have a chronic shortage of maths teachers in our schools. What action is the government going to take on this issue? Well, the Honourable Lady makes a very good point, and the Nuffield Foundation have produced an extremely worthwhile report looking at how badly we are doing in terms of maths teaching and in terms of the number of people studying maths. We're going to be taking a series of steps to sort this out, which my right hon. Friend, the Education Secretary, will be announcing. One of them is to expand Teach First, which is an excellent scheme to get graduates from our best universities into schools. That will, for the first time, include primary schools, and many of them will be maths teachers. But we also want to raise the bar for teachers in terms of the qualifications they need to teach maths. It's absolutely vital in our country, and she's quite right to highlight this issue. Morris. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Last Friday, I visited my constituent, Vera Gaskin, at a... Mr Speaker, I visited my constituent, uh, Vera Gaskin, at a Livingston home. Mrs Gaskin has hepatitis C, having contracted it in 1985 through a transfusion of contaminated blood. She had, diagnosed, she had been diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease at the time. Of course, Mr Speaker, her situation is not dissimilar to the several thousands of people who also suffered due to the tainted blood scandal of the 1970s and 80s. Sadly, many has, have passed away since. Obviously, I'm aware of previous debates in this House on the matter and the statement by the Health Secretary on the 10th of January. However, this does not bring closure to many victims and their families. So, Mr Speaker, will the Prime Minister personally prioritise this matter, work with the devolved administrations and bring forward a proper compensation scheme, thus finally bringing justice to the innocent victims of this terrible tragedy? I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his question, and, and just as he has had constituents who have come to him about this extremely difficult issue, I've had exactly the same experience in my own constituency. And I think there was, although previous governments had put in place arrangements, I think there was a basic unfairness, particularly towards those who caught hepatitis C, because the evidence about what happens to people with AIDS on the one hand and hepatitis C on the other has changed over the years. And I was pleased that my Honourable Right Honourable Friend, the Health Secretary, made the statement last week that we were increasing uh, what was being given to those suffering from hepatitis C. I'm not sure there is ever a level of payment that will bring closure for what was such an appalling uh, accident. But I do believe the, the conditions in this country were different to other countries that campaigners often compare it to, such as the Republic of Ireland, and I think we have got the right answer. Mr Don Foster. Yeah, yeah, Mr yeah. Speaker, the mobility component of DLA for people in care homes is being reviewed. So whatever improvements are made, can the Prime Minister assure me that disabled people in care homes will still have access to individually tailored mobility support and, as the coalition agreement implies, at no extra cost to either them or their families? Well, I'm grateful to my, my honourable friend's question. The intention here is very clear. We want to make sure that the treatment of people in hospital is the same as the treatment of people in residential care homes in terms of the mobility component of DLA. That is, that is what was behind the announcement we made, and that is what we want to make sure happens. Mr. Nigel Dodds. The Prime Minister may be aware that uh, one of the members elected to this House has decided to emigrate, and he may want to chalk that up as one of his achievements. But, uh, <laughs> 
The said member for West Belfast, Jerry Adams, seems to be extremely embarrassed about applying for an office under the Crown, an office for profit, although he has shown no such embarrassment of profiting from his office in this House for many years at taxpayers' expense. When will the Prime Minister deliver on his pre-election pledge to taxpayers, hard-pressed taxpayers, that he will abolish parliamentary money for parliamentary purposes going to those who do not fulfil their parliamentary duties? Well, first of all, just in case everyone hasn't uh, caught up with the news, the Honourable Gentleman is quite right that the Honourable Member for West Belfast has accepted an office of profit under the Crown, which is, of course, the only way you can retire from this House. And uh, I'm not sure that uh, Gerry Adams will be delighted to be a Baron of the Manor of Northstead. Um, (laughs) But nonetheless, um, I'm pleased that tradition has been maintained. Um, The the very serious point the Honourable Gentleman makes uh, about allowances, in my view, what we should be aiming for is for all members who are elected to take their seats in this House. That is what should happen. And if some members have a problem with what that entails, they ought to look at a remedy to that, and they should come and talk about that. I think that is the most important thing that we could achieve. Karen Lumley. to join with me in congratulating Vayner First School in Redditch, where I'm Chairman of Governors, which has recently received a good Ofsted report, despite the continual lack of fairer funding from the party opposite. Will the Prime Minister also welcome the extra funding that we are heading to Worcestershire schools due to the pupil premium totalling more than £3 million? The Honourable Lady makes a very good point, and I hope that everyone in this House will be able to welcome the fact, first of all, that the amount of spending per pupil is actually going to continue, even though we have a very tough and difficult situation in our country. And over and above that, there will be a pupil premium payment, something which the party opposite did not do in 13 years of being in power. And this money will go to those from deprived backgrounds in schools all over our country, not just in inner city areas, but as she says, her own constituency will benefit. And I think the whole House should celebrate that. Tom Watson. The former investigating officer is now on the payroll of News International. Three senior editors are now identified with phone hacking. Isn't it time? that another police force took over the inquiry. You have the status to make it happen, Prime Minister. What are you afraid of? Phone hacking, let's be absolutely clear, phone hacking is wrong. Phone hacking is illegal. And I think that that's quite right that the Director of Public Prosecutions is reviewing all of the evidence and they should follow the evidence wherever it leads. I don't think it's necessarily fair to say the police have not been active. After all, there have been prosecutions, convictions and indeed imprisonments. But the law is quite clear and the prosecuting authorities should follow it wherever it leads. Mr James Clapperson. Tomorrow is Holocaust Memorial Day, the anniversary of the day on which Auschwitz was liberated. Would my right honourable friend join with me in paying tribute to the work of the Holocaust Education Trust and their work to ensure that the lessons of the Holocaust are not forgotten? I know my honourable friend speaks for the whole House when he raises the brilliant work that the Holocaust Education Trust do, and I think it's a good time actually to pay tribute to the sadly very few Holocaust survivors that there are still left. I had the huge privilege of meeting one Trude uh, Levi yesterday in number 10 Downing Street and to hear the story of what those people went through, what they escaped and in many cases what they had to go through even after they'd escaped is truly humbling. We must never forget, not just because of what happened in Europe in the Holocaust but because of too often the genocide in our world today. We need to be permanently reminded of that fact. Mr Ian Davidson. 
Uh, the Prime Minister, the Chancellor and a majority of the Cabinet grew up in secure worlds of economic wealth and privilege. Does he agree? Does he agree that today's young people face economic uncertainty and high youth unemployment? Is youth unemployment a price worth paying? No, it never is. But the point I would make to the honourable gentleman is that youth unemployment has been a real structural problem in our country for years. We had, under the last government, when the economy grew for many years, youth unemployment was worse at the end of that growth than it was at the beginning. And then, of course, it rocketed during the recession. So I think we have to have a really serious examination of how we can reduce the number of people who are not in education, not in employment, not in training. And I think we better, rather than trading slogans across the House to really work out why this has gone up in good times and in bad. Chris Hopkins. Thank yeah, you, Mr yeah, Speaker. Yeah, yeah. Unlike the NHS or my local council, Manolan's uh, Sue Ryder Hospice in my constituency are not able to reclaim the VAT which they paid. Can I ask the Prime Minister to examine this issue and try and create a level playing field for health care charities? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know this is a an issue that many honourable members care about deeply and we all should pay tribute to the hospice movement and what it does uh, working with our health service. It's important we do everything we can to cut red tape and allow charities to thrive. Charities can and do reclaim some of their VAT but in terms of looking at a bigger exemption in the way that he speaks about we have to look at the consequences both for the state sector and the private sector and their relationship with the voluntary sector before we could take a step like that. Mr Keith Vaz. The visit of the Prime Minister of Bangladesh to the United Kingdom and to Parliament. Apparently, a few years ago, when she came to a session of PMQs, she was so impressed she decided to institute it in Bangladesh. <laughs> I'm not sure whether she's changed her mind. <laughs> um, could he give the House an assurance that he will continue to build on the strong bilateral links between Britain and Bangladesh? Yeah. No, I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his question and uh, the Prime Minister is very welcome to Britain and also welcome to be watching our deliberations today. As he says, whether she'll go away feeling uh, proud and excited by what the Mother of Parliaments does at Wednesday at 12 o'clock is another question. She's already had a very good meeting with my right hon. friend, the Deputy Prime Minister. Relations between Britain and Bangladesh are good and I think we need to expand them still further. Nigel Adams. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My constituents, Ben Oldroyd and Matthew Carr, are autistic and have Asperger's syndrome. They have asked for my help um, because they want to visit schools in the Selby district to speak with pupils and staff and give them their experience of living with autism and the challenges that they face with this condition. They have already received praise from the head of Brayton High School. And would uh, my right honourable friend agree that this sort of initiative could be extremely good news for schools and the teaching profession? Well, I, I thank my honourable friend for his question. I think it raises an important point because, of course, we did make good steps during the last Parliament with my right honourable friend's bill in terms of autism, but I think there's a huge amount that actually can be done by people themselves to get a greater understanding of autism and Asperger's, not least because there is such a huge spectrum and such a big difference between the children suffering from this condition. And I'm sure the work that he does, the work that he is referring to, is, is extremely worthwhile. Stella Creasy. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Last week, the Prime Minister said something I actually agree with. He said... He said we 
needed to do something about loan sharking. So will he join me next week supporting the motion to cap the costs of credit and support the poorest consumers in Britain and protect them from these companies? At the danger of building on what's already obviously clearly a blossoming friendship, um, <laughs> I, will, uh, I will look carefully at what she says. It seems to me that, that on the issue of loan sharks, one part of it should be encouraging credit unions, and I think there's all party support for that. I think sometimes there's a, we have to be careful as we regulate that we don't drive out responsible uh, operators and bring in loan sharks. So we've got to get the balance right, but I'll look very carefully at what she's saying and perhaps get back to her. Jesse Norman. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Last week, the Public Accounts Committee found that the last Labour government had pushed through PFI deals without offering any alternative and often regardless of expense or value for money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The result has been to cost the taxpayer billions of pounds too much. Does the Prime Minister share my view that there should now be a full investigation of why and how this happened? Yeah. Well, I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his question. I think the Public Accounts Committee can do a lot of that work in unveiling, frankly, some of the appalling decisions that were made, which was just about off-balance sheet accounting rather than good value for money. And I see the Shadow Chancellor nodding at that stage. Frankly, he was in the Treasury when all this happened. As in so many cases, what we're going to find is the mistakes we now have to pay for are the responsibility of, of uh, Gordon Brown's two henchmen sitting opposite us. Yeah. Alan Michael. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, the Prime Minister used to talk rather a lot about fairness, but he hasn't done so well on performance, so here's a test for him. The banks have walked away from the talks on bankers' bonuses. What's he going to do about it? Well, the talks are ongoing, and I'll tell you what I want. I want the banks to pay more in tax, and they will pay more in tax, up from £18 billion last year to £20 billion next year. He says they've walked away. They haven't. These talks are ongoing, and I want to see the taxes go up, the bonuses come down, but vitally, the lending increase. And I'm confident we'll achieve all those three goals. Paul Maynard. I know the Prime Minister regards Blackpool as a special place, as indeed he should. Does he not agree with me, though, that it is about time that Blackpool's unique status as the first working-class seaside resort should be recognised with UNESCO World Heritage status? Well, the Honourable Gentleman makes a powerful case for his constituency, and I, I, I do have a warm feeling whenever I think of Blackpool because of the many uh, conferences I've attended there and the time I've spent there. I understand, as I know he does, the pressures it faces because of changing patterns of, of tourism and development, and this Government is committed to helping Blackpool to map out a strong future, and it's also wonderful to see Blackpool where they belong in the Premier League. Sheila Gilmore. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. With, with the economy shrinking by 5%, inflation rising. Having followed Ireland on the path of cutting too fast and too deep, are we not now in danger of following Ireland further down that slippery slope? I'm sorry to tell the Honourable Lady, the 5% reduction was under her government, not under this government. I, I, if uh, the former Shadow Chancellor's primer has gone missing, perhaps she could be able to get hold of a, get hold of a copy. The point I'd make is this. When, when we came to office in May, the idea that there was some acceptable plan to reduce the deficit is a complete fiction. Let me just give her this one figure. If we went ahead 
uh, with the plan of halving the deficit in four years, in four years' time, our deficit would be bigger than Portugal's is now. Does anybody think that is a credible path back to growth and confidence? It isn't. Richard Graham. Thank you, Mr Speaker. One of the most important strands in the government's growth strategy has been the creation of 75,000 additional apprenticeships. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that the forthcoming National Apprenticeship Week and the Gloucestershire Apprenticeship Fair represent a great opportunity to get young constituents to earn while they learn, especially in the manufacturing sectors which are growing faster now than at any time under the previous government? friend makes an excellent point. In the spending review, we had to take difficult decisions, particularly difficult decisions on welfare and on pay. But as a result, we're able to expand the number of apprenticeships to a record level, an extra 75,000. And we can see, yes, the growth figures are disappointing, but manufacturing is up, exports are up, and we are starting to rebalance the economy away from the unsustainable booms that we had under the party opposite. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.